Welcome to Small Things Make a Big Difference. My name is Spencer Holt. I'm a father of four, a married amazing wife. I have lived in Canada, the USA, and in England. I speak all three Englishes fluently. I currently work at AstraZeneca in the pharmaceutical industry where I'm head of our global commercial learning and I'm passionate about how do we as leaders be more intentional in who we're trying to become and help bring out the best in others. This is a series of interviews of leaders all over the world. So join us, share it with others, and let's focus on the small things that make a big difference. Stephen Covey wrote one of his famous books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of those habits was first seek to understand and then to be understood. And my interview this week, something hit me and struck me a little bit different today. And in fact, the, the podcast today is called Courageous Listening. Dr. Johnson, who you're going to talk, you're listen to, talks about this. It made me pause on this habit of first seeking to understand, which means we need to listen. But I'm going to challenge us to do something maybe even a little bit more. It's first listen to understand, and then listen again to what's in between the lines so that you're not just gathering information. You're trying to understand the why of what's being said. I think oftentimes we are so quick today in a fast-paced world to formulate a response. We might listen the first time, but have we really taken time to process what was between the lines, and what that person meant. Why I love the podcast today is Dr. Johnson forces us to think about, are we courageously listening? Are we suspending our biases? Are we getting off our agenda and not being threatened, even if we don't agree to what we're hearing, but really listening to what is being said? I know I can do a better job at this at work, I can definitely do a better job of this at home, whether it's with my wife, with my kids. May we start to think about the concept of courageous listening and how that applies to the small things we can do on a regular basis that will make a big difference to the people we interact with. This week on Small Things Make a Big Difference, I am elated that we have Dr. Jim Johnson from North Carolina visiting with us today. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Spencer, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited and delighted that we were finally able to connect here. It's been, <laughs> looking forward well, to our conversation. It has been a little bit of time. I, I, was, I first was able to hear you speak um, at a, uh, you, were, you were talking to a group of individuals around branding and like personal uh, career development. And it was amazing. But as I did a little bit of research about what you did. You do so much more than that um, at UNC, and in particular, work with um, youth and underprivileged youth. And so I'd love to talk about that. But before we get into any of that, tell us a little bit more about who you are and um, what brought you to North Carolina and your journey. Well, well, thanks so much again for having me. Uh, well, I'm a native North Carolinian, uh, and uh, I grew up uh, in the 50s and 60s. So I grew up in the height of segregation in the South and uh, uh, graduated from high school in 1972 as the first 
fully integrated graduating class in Farmville, North Carolina, <laughs> a very small community, and then went to uh, undergraduate school at North Carolina Central University, a historically black college in uh, Durham, North Carolina, with a very rich and distinguished history. Uh, and then um, most people don't realize this, but historically black Big Ten universities ha have had a historical relationship with historically black colleges and universities. And so uh, I had the good fortune of having a very strong mentor at Central who connected me with uh, graduate education opportunities at the University of Wisconsin at Madison and Michigan State University. I uh, got my master's in, at UW-Madison and PhD at uh, Michigan State University, two great Big Ten universities. Um, and, uh, and then moved on from there to uh, UCLA was my first job. I taught there for 14 years and then got recruited back to UNC Chapel Hill in 1992. So I've been here about 30 years uh, teaching in the business school uh, uh, as my primary appointment. And I also have um, appointments uh, in sociology, geography, and public policy. <clears throat> so pretty much you're a super smart guy. And, <laughs> uh, and you, you bring, I love kind of, you bring a wealth of lessons through through time that has brought you, you know, my guess is it, just listening to you speak the one time, I would, you know, I'd love to come and, and visit a, one of your lectures. What are some of the things that you're most passionate about that you're researching today and that you're doing work about today? So, you know, I'm a demographer by training and I think we're in the midst of a prof profound demographic transformation that's gonna radically transform uh, the workplace, the workforce and consumer markets. Uh, we are an aging nation. Uh, a lot of us who are, have a little snow on the mountaintop like me are going to be headed out of the workforce. Uh, there are boomers, there are 81 million of us uh, born between 1946 and 1964. The first one turned uh, 65 in 2011. Between 2011 and 2029, we boomers are going to be turning 65 at 10,000 per day. That creates for you, Spencer, a slight succession problem in the workplace. <laughs> <laughs> and so the question becomes, how do we think about the next generation of talent? And that next generation of talent will be far more diverse racially and ethnically than the current and these generation that's aging out of the labor market. So for me, the real question is, how do we make sure that that next generation of talent has the skills, uh, to compete in a hyper-competitive global economy where the new normal is certain uncertainty. What do you need in your toolkit to weather certain uncertainty? So I focus a lot on, on kids of color and making sure that they have opportunities of access to well-honed uh, 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 educational opportunities in the marketplace. And you, you mentioned like, how do we thrive in an environment of, of uncertainty, right? And mm -hmm. I, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's great that we're going to teach our younger gender. But what about me? Like, I want to know about that. So yeah, yeah. in your mind today, what is what are some of those capabilities that we need to, to be able to thrive and lead in this uncertain world today? Yeah, so you need uh, first and foremost, contextual intelligence. Okay, the ability to read the tea leaves of change so that you are assured that you are not blindsided by change. Uh, you need to be able to peer through the fog of certain uncertainty 
and identify the, uh, the landmines to be avoided and the propitious opportunities to be taken advantage of. That means you have to be a master of information management. There's nothing that happens in society that there aren't some clues that those things are going to happen. Your challenge, the challenge of the next generation is, is to make sure you're on top of your information game. So you have to leverage every information, social media tool that you have at your disposal, every act, uh, source of information that you have at your disposal to make sure that you're on top of your game. There's two kinds of changes, predictable changes, things that we know are gonna happen, and then unpredictable changes. The real challenge is if you get blindsided by particular uh, predictable change, you're just an idiot. And we know that those things are going to happen. <laughs> the challenge and the opportunity is how do you, to use a boxing analogy, narrow the ring so you are not blindsided by unpredictable change. I'm old school, I'm a Google alert junkie, okay? So for the things that worry me, bother me, that I sell myself in the marketplace as an expert on, I get Google alerts five times a day on those topics. You have to be on top of your information game. The challenge for me and for people that would be listening is how do we be intentional about being alerted or pausing and listening to, to your point, the unpredictable change. So your Google alerts, what else could we do? Like what to your mind, like in a busy world, how do we do that and take time out to read the tea leaves? It's about information management. It's about time management. You have to give priority to it. And you have to, if, if, if you think you are too busy to do it, then leverage the power and influence of your staff to download the material so that you can read them in your downtime. I mean, we're in an instant information age. You just gotta figure out how to stay on top of your information game. And secondly, how to distinguish fake news from reliable information, okay? Uh, that, that's a really big thing because, uh, and then how do you overcome what is called confirmation bias? We're in a mm. highly divided society today where people only listen to and uh, watch uh, information and read information sources that, that, that sort of reaffirm their own views. Uh, in, in, a, in a highly polarized society, we have to be able to, uh, my grandmother said there are two sides to every story and the truth is somewhere in between. If you're gonna be an effective leader, you're gonna have to be able to, to read and balance you know, the information that you receive and arrive at, at, at some kind of reasonable kind of stance. We have to get into the mindset of courageous listening even to things that we don't agree with, not to refute, but rather to appreciate and understand. I'm literally writing down the word courageous listening right now, yeah. because to your point, it's, it's how do you avoid fake news? But then to your point is, explain a little bit more about courageous listening, because I'm like, yeah. am, I, am I a courageous listener? I, tell me more, share more. So, so, so in, in, in a highly polarized society, when someone is speaking that you don't agree with, you may be listening, but you're listening to refute. You're not listening to appreciate the, what they're really saying. And that's the problem in society that in a polarized society, I'm not here just to, to support your view. I'm here to shoot you down, knock you over with a two by four or whatever, 
because that is inconsistent with my own belief structure. We have to get to a point where, uh, even in higher education, we have to get to a point where we're teaching about competitive, competing perspectives on issues. It's not about indoctrination. And ultimately, it's not about changing your mindset. It's about educating you and getting you to understand that the world is really far more com complex than the little crucibles we like to see ourselves in. And in, in a society that is, is constantly in flux and changing, uh, we, have to, we have to develop the capability to engage in courageous listening. We're not doing it right now. I love that. And mm -hmm. you're, you're reminding me of a professor when I was doing my PhD, his, his name was Dr. Ackerman. And he always said, avoid the two ends of the spectrum yep. because that type of you know radical whether you're on the right or the left it keeps you from what you've just now helped me articulate keeps us from courageous listening right and being able to i think read the tea leaves of information yeah absolutely absolutely that what i would say is though when you or, or i spencer is a, are about to walk into a meeting to make a pitch for an idea Okay. One person on the panel could be the, 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 to the left of Mother Teresa, and the other one could be the right of Attila the Hun, and then there's you standing there. <laughs> right? And the worst thing that you can do is get upset in either context. The key is, is how do you engage? And we, we talk a lot about courageous conversations. We don't talk about courageous listening. And oftentimes, courageous conversations end up with only courageous <laughs> there's no outcome we gotta we gotta get to a place where uh we listen um and 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 appreciate be empathetic of alternative perspectives and and with the with the hope that there's movement toward some consensus around what really needs to be done <clears throat> if you're listening right now my takeaways already are the importance of data and pausing to look through the tea leaves. I love this courageous listening. Like, how are we listening? Really, I, I'm, I used to, I'm almost like holding my hand up. I talk about courageous conversations. <laughs> like, can we have them? But to your point, are you then also balancing that with courageous listening? Amazing. I don't want to, I don't want to run out of time here. I can listen to you forever. Um, and so what, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in, in creating future leaders of tomorrow. And then I want to explore like what can our role that maybe we're a little bit older today, but what's our role in helping with that? So tell us a little bit about what you're doing there. So, uh, so demographically, uh, as you look at the next generation of talent that has to prepare our nation is far more diverse than the current generation. We've got lots of kids who are black and brown, who are uh, come from disadvantaged and impoverished backgrounds. And if you look at the education system now, when it approaches those kids, they often approach those kids with a deficit model. Everything is wrong with you and I'm gonna fix it. And I reject that model. Everything isn't wrong with these kids and there are lots of stuff you don't need to fix, you need to build on. So we have engaged in this notion of working with young kids to say that it's important to invest in our own future, not just as a social and moral goal, but as a form of enlightened self-interest because we're gonna need this talent moving forward. And so we say deficit models are out, successful pathways are in. And what we mean by that is if you look at the average uh, kid or, or, or 
a poor community, not every kid who grows up in a poor community ends up a failure. Some of them succeed against the odds. And so you have to ask the question, well, what distinguishes success from failure? And there are two important things there. One, the kids who grow up in impoverished environments and uh, succeed against the odds are typically embedded in what is called a mediating institution in their own environment that encourages them to pursue mainstream avenues of social and economic mobility and discourages them from engaging in dysfunctional behaviors. So if you ever have listened to a, an interview with Denzel Washington about his success, he always gives credit to the Boys and Girls Club. He said that was the thing that was important. Same thing with LeBron James. He's investing in Boys and Girls Clubs across the country because he said that was the safe haven when his mother was working in, uh, in those hours that outside the home in the lake. So we have, in essence, built our own mediating institution for, for kids called Global Scholars Academy. It's an extended day, year-round laboratory school for disadvantaged youth. The second thing, though, and this is the one that's most uh, intriguing, that kids who succeed out of impoverished environments are typically embedded in a diverse network of institutions and connections outside of their own neighborhoods. What the Harvard political scientist Bob Putnam calls bridging social capital. The more diverse your networks are, the more geographically expansive they are, the better off you're going to be in life. So how do you take a group of kids who grow up in some of the most socially and spatially isolated environments and connect them with the world? Okay. So one way that we do it uh, at Keenan Flagler, I teach in the business school, we have about you know, 300 MBAs at any two-year period, maybe 350. And about a third of those kids agree to tutor and mentor at Global Scholars Academy in Durham, six miles away. And every kid, Every year from kindergarten through grade eight gets two mentors, okay? They're gonna be all over the world. Now, what happens when those folks graduate from Keenan Flag? Well, they go to work for AstraZeneca. They go to work for JP Morgan Chase. They go to work for the Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey and the like. What have I just done? I've connected a group of kids with a diverse network of ties that gives them a a broader set of information, but also all kinds of opportunity that middle and upper class kids have by birthright. Because you, Spencer, may be sitting in a meeting and AstraZeneca may be talking about, we need to do something to eliminate systemic racism. So we want to work with poor kids. You say, oh, man, what was that kid that I worked with several years ago? Mm -hmm. It's the strength of weak ties that matter. It's not your strong ties that matter, but rather it's the strength of your weak ties. Your strong ties are with people you hang out with on a normal basis. Whole new learning goes on there. There's just gossip usually. It's the weak tie, that person that you don't interface with on a routine basis, but people that you can draw upon when you need guidance in the life. Early on, that person may be a mentor, giving you advice. But if that person is convinced that you are worth investing their reputation to move forward in organizations, you become a sponsor. Sponsorship matters in organizations. And so we're trying in the school to build those networks with the kids at the same time that we have developed a curriculum that says, what tools do you need in your kit to, to thrive and prosper uh, in this highly volatile global economy. And so we have 
brand promise coming into the school and brand promise going out. What we say to kids coming in is, and to their parents, we, we guarantee your kid four things here, protection, affection, correction, and connections, okay? We're gonna create a safe environment for your kid to think crazy thoughts. Nine out of 10 of them may be bona fide crazy, but the one of them may be the next revolution that transforms life. <laughs> I love that. You got, you got to have the, the, you create that environment for, for kids. We're going to love the heck out of you. You can come in and act crazy today. Uh, tomorrow, we will still be standing here. And sooner or later, a group of kids are going to walk up to you and say, hey, we don't do that here. You create a structure. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, those connections are the things that, that I talked about uh, out there. What do we guarantee going out? We guarantee kids with entrepreneurial acumen, the analytical reasoning skills to compete, with cultural elasticity, the ability to move from the streets to the suites without missing a beat, and the agility and flexibility to constantly reinvent themselves. That's the nature of the economy and the world we live in today. And that's what we're trying to embed in our kids. We do it from six, uh, from 7.30 in the morning to 6 p.m. daily. We're now virtual because of all the things we do. We have an entrepreneurial startup program that begins in kindergarten. We teach Mandarin beginning in kindergarten. You want to see a group of kids learning Mandarin through rap music? Stop by Global God Scholars Academy. <laughs> stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff that we're doing. I think we have to reinvent education because we have an education system that was built on an agrarian system. You know, kids go to school from, you know, 7 to 3.30 and they had to work, and, you know, and they, and they were off in the summers and the like. We know that there's something called a summer drop-off effect, that when kids are out of school, they're not learning. So we're year-round, we're extended day, and we never close during intercessions because we know kids don't, are not engaged in meaningful activities. They don't have food sometimes, all of those things. We have to reinvent education, not just for social and moral reasons, but you and I are gonna need that talent moving forward. Even if they're not working for us, we need them to be working to pay into the system so you can get your cutie, your social security. <laughs> so, I mean, I, wow, I am inspired by the work that you're doing. And, and I, was, I was sitting here thinking about these I love the, the the term of strong connection, weak connection. And mm -hmm. so as I'm sitting here thinking here, how many weak connections do I have that are helping build that next generation of leadership? And so would one of the things that, if I'm listening to this today and say, how do I get involved and make a difference? Would one of those things be, think about how do we make some connections to individuals that are A, younger than us, that are, um, that and and maybe are, not in our direct communities, but somewhere else, whether it's a boys club, your yeah. school, um, is, that, is that a good that, place to start? That is, uh, that, that's absolutely a good place to start. The other thing that I would add, Spencer, is, is that it's important to have the cultural competency to deal with the kids and not approach them through a stereotypic lens. And so how do we interface and how do we recognize talent and build on it? Because sometimes, uh, you know, when we say, well, we want a mentor and tutor, where if you're not, if you don't understand how to communicate with kids, you know, we have a, a, a entrepreneurship training program and, you know, everybody says, well, you, you know, to be a great entrepreneur in a successful business, you need to understand the core functional areas of business, finance and accounting. Well, to talk to a kid about an accountant, when have they ever had 
the opportunity to interface with an accountant. You have to walk in and say, let's talk about handling the Benjamins. <laughs> okay. okay. Same concept. Yep. But you got to understand how to enter the lives of the kids where they are. And once you do that and have that skill set, uh, you know, it's the game is on because when you teach kids about code switching, the ability to change your behavioral norms depending on the situational concepts, context you find yourself in, it is on then. Because, and that's that's life. You know as well as I do as working for a global company, you don't do business the same way in the US that you do in Africa or some other society. Mm -hmm. You have to have the cultural elasticity to move fluidly from those different settings. I, I love that, this, this cultural competency. Yeah. Of not just, and the thing about it, sometimes we think about it, oh, it's how would I work in Japan or how would I work in you know Belgium? But what you're also saying is there's cultural competencies when you're dealing with the younger generation. And sure. are we, do we understand that? And can yeah. we flex it that way? That's exactly. And, and Spencer, it's even more germane to our lives on a daily basis. Uh, you know, if your car breaks down in a neighborhood that you don't understand the code of the streets, it doesn't matter that you got a PhD. It doesn't <laughs> matter that you work for AstraZeneca. If you're just as dumb as nails if you don't understand that. Likewise, if you bring a kid from that environment into an interview setting in AstraZeneca or some other company and they don't understand the code of the suites, they're at a substantial disadvantage. But it's not one or the other, it's the ability to move fluidly across those contexts, which is, a, which is an important skill. It's a, it's a skill for, it's a global competency skill. Uh, but it, it, it varies from your neighborhood all the way to the global company uh, and, 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 and we don't, we're not good at educating kids with all of that. That's the thing that we have to get better. At. Well, and, and my goodness, I, I, I almost, I can't wait. We're going to, I, I want to deep dive into your school. Cause I'm like, what a framework and an example, I think for probably the rest of the world to say, how do we do this different? And uh, we're going to run out of time here, unfortunately, and I would because I want to. There's so many more questions, but I have three more for you if you can hang out with me for three more important questions. First one is this: this month is Black History Month, and uh, on my last episode, it was Kimberly Davis that we that you actually know, and and she talked about inclusion is a year-round sport. It's not just a month, in which I loved her perspective about that. Yeah. Yeah. But also, there's some significance to this month around what we can do, and so I'd love to ask you. What does Black History Month to mean to you and how do you help celebrate and utilize this for the rest of the world? Well, we all stand on uh, some pretty wide shoulders in the past that are responsible for where we and where I sit today. Uh, and my role is uh, to educate those young people that I work with every day about our history. And some of it, Spencer, requires a new history, a rewriting of history where truth is at the fundamental basis. I think that's what the whole systemic racism, uh, anti-racism movement is all about. We have to correct some history and we have to make sure our kids understand the pivotal role <clears throat> that people, of, that Blacks have played in building this nation and, we, uh, and eliminate some of the misinformation in our history and push 
for a revision of the uh, certainly the K-12 education curriculum so that we make sure that this uh, is a core component of our curriculum, that the history and truth, that the truth of, of the African-American experience in America is told in, 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 in the correct kind of way. And so leading by example, uh, helping kids uh, with independent learning on, about their own history. And so innovative exercises and the like, and then bringing people to them uh, virtually and sometimes face-to-face uh, -face that they never would otherwise have had the opportunity to interface with. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't be here if those kinds of things did not happen for me. I grew up on a tobacco farm in Eastern North Carolina. So, you know, uh, I feel fortunate and blessed to have had mentors and people who taught. That was one of the values for me, Spencer, of attending a historically black college uh, at, as an undergrad. When I went to Wisconsin, Madison, one thing was clear. I had a strong self-concept because I understood my history. Mm -hmm. So that that that's priceless. And, and I, I'm, I'm forever grateful for having that experience uh, 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 as an undergraduate. <clears throat> well, and you are you are an example of not only understanding the history, but I think then more importantly giving back to that history in an incredibly positive way, uh, which is amazing and so inspiring to listen to. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Question number two, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a music junkie and I'm putting together my very own Small Things Make a Big Difference playlist. And so if you were to add a song onto the playlist, what song do you kind of, you know, kind of gets you going and brings uh, purpose to what you do on a daily basis. What, what song would you add for us? Hmm. Uh, it would be a Marvin Gaye song from the 70s. What's going on, inner city blues or something because I think the kinds of things that he was singing about back in the day, we're still confronted in dealing with those issues. And um, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a Soul Town fan on Sirius XM uh, of the Motown era, and um, so I would say Marvin uh, and some of his songs. Perfect. I, I'm I'm yeah. putting them on today. <laughs> my final question yeah. is: as the name of the podcast, it's small things make a big difference. I'd love to hear what is one small leadership habit that you display on a daily basis that makes a big difference in the lives of your students, your youth students, uh, the communities mm -hmm. that you live in. Mm -hmm. Modeling the behavior you want them to achieve and to aspire to. Uh, so whenever uh, a young kid uh, or someone directs a kid to me for mentorship or something of that nature, our first meeting is at 6 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Okay, you show up at 601, we don't have a meeting. We don't have a meeting. It's about structure because a lot of times kids see people like you and I who are successful. Uh, a lot of kids say, Dr. J, if I had your hand, I'd cut mine off, meaning they think I got it. And they, they don't understand what it takes to survive, thrive, and prosper in a society where systemic racism exist. I grew up on a farm, so six o'clock is almost lunchtime, you know. So no, 
there are expectations. You have to understand the rules and the unwritten rules, and you have to understand how people sometimes stereotype you. Uh, one of my big mentors, uh, Mr. Frank Hawkins Keenan of the Keenan Flagler Business School, uh, had this thing, uh, never be late for a meeting. And he was always 15, 20 minutes late. He always sat in the same chair, thumping his pencil. And if you were late, he says, you've lost your competitive advantage. Because the first thing you do, you're walking in and you're apologizing and maybe even being lying about why you're late. <laughs> so, so you have to model the behavior that you want kids to aspire to and be uh, clear to them uh, about the struggles, the challenges, and the opportunities you had in life so that they understand that it's not all what you just see. You look at a person and say, oh, I can be that. You can, but you need to understand the, you know, the challenges and the opportunities and then how you need to uh, behave in order to get there. And I'm honest about both the on-ramps and the off-ramps that you don't predict or you don't you know, understand. You just get hit by upside down with a two by four. But do you just lay there and wallow or do you pick yourself up and move on? So a lot of it is that kind of stuff, Spencer, that I think we have to do. So modeling behavior, I think, is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Dr. Johnson, you have been both inspirational, <laughs> educational, and I, I'm, I'm walking away from this interview wanting to be better and investing in weak associations that I think will make a difference tomorrow. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this week's session of Small Things Make a Big Difference. If you heard something that you liked and something that stuck with you, go ahead and share it with a friend. Grow the community throughout the world. Dr. Johnson was not only very super smart, but also inspirational couple takeaways for me. Predict the unpredictable. How do we read the tea leaves so that we can start to, as leaders, make changes that not everyone sees, but that actually that will help make a big difference. Courageous listening resonated with me so much and has challenged me ever since listening to Dr. Johnson in the way that I am listening in every conversation, in every environment that I'm in. Also the concept of weak connections. How many of those do I have? And am I using those as valuable both development opportunities for myself and a way to help give back to communities and develop future leaders of tomorrow? My hope is that during this episode, you picked out one small thing that you can do in your own leadership and the people that you interact with that will make a big difference. Have a great week.